Hey friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, speaker, and Forbes blogger, and I created the U-Turn Podcast because, let's face it, every now and again, we realize that we're living life on autopilot, and it's time to wake up and make that U-Turn. So prepare to go deep with some of the most transformational people I know, here to help you grow and upgrade your mindset, whether it's in work or love. Be sure to stick around for the end of every episode where I'm going to reflect on the conversation and offer actionable coaching insights to have a real impact on your life. In the meantime, we've opened up access to three free e-courses on uturnpodcast.com. So head on over there if you want to land a new job you love, find your purpose, or launch your dream business. All of these courses are totally free. All you got to do is head on over to uturnpodcast.com. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com. Now let's get started with this week's guest. What we're doing is we're reinforcing the idea that the big things in this world are things that make us rich or things that make us famous and everything else we call the little things. Ah. And that to me is we, we got to realize we're doing that shit. Hey everybody, guess who? It's Ash and I'm here with Drew Dudley. He is the author of the international bestseller, This Is Day One. It's a practical guide to creating leadership that matters. And he is named one of the top 50 most inspirational TED Talkers of our time with a TED Talk that boasts more than 4 million views about leadership. Um, So obviously, you know, I'm not impressed so far yet, Drew. Uh, Welcome to the show. (laughs) Well then, all right, then let's do this. What do I need to do to impress you? Oh my gosh, I mean, this is, I'm just so excited because, and those of you listening, we were talking before we started recording and we agreed to do a talk with Drew now about how to stop ignoring your inner leader and how to really step into whatever that looks like for you. And um, so, I mean, anything you say is probably going to impress me because I am, As an entrepreneur, I think that I can be a creator, I can have visions, I can execute on it, but I think it's really different to be a leader, to really feel like I'm a leader with what I'm doing. Um, And so I think there's a lot of people that are doing things that look very leader-y, but doesn't mean that they're a leader. Um, So I would love to learn from you, number one, like how does this play a role in your life and why leadership, what brought you here? Well, for a decade, I ran the leadership development program at the University of Toronto, which is Canada's biggest university. And to be honest, I got really annoyed with how we taught leadership because I was surrounded by these brilliant and dynamic and extraordinary young people, and they just weren't cool with the idea that they were leaders yet. And I realized a huge part of that a huge part of it was how we taught leadership from a very young age. Like you're saying, you know, there's people out there who aren't comfortable with the idea that stuff looks like leadership, but we're hesitant to call it that. And it's because we got educated out of it. And and I guess I'll ask you this. Um, And everyone at home can think about this as well. Uh, Who was the first person you can remember being taught about as a leader? So when they wanted to explain the concept to you, because in the education system, when we want to introduce a concept and help you understand it. What we do is we use examples of it. So what was the first one that you can think of that was presented to you as a leader so you could learn the concept? Okay, that's so interesting. And in my case, it would have been my dad who like ran a huge company, lost all of his money and his sanity with it for a while. (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah. That's see, and that's the way we should. Uh, like, I want to say this. I get asked a lot about who are the leaders I look up to, and I do believe that all of your leadership heroes should be people that you know. Mm. Like, we shouldn't be talking. Like, look, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm in my, I admire Martin Luther King or or RFK or you know Steve Jobs, whatever the case may be. But ultimately, all of your leadership heroes should be people that you know. Because you get to see how they make decisions every day. And when we talk about famous leaders, ultimately all we see are the outcomes of their decisions, Mm. not how they made them. But what's odd about, I don't say it's odd about your answer, but what's unusual about your answer is it wasn't someone famous. Mm -hmm. And for most people who think about it, it was probably one of those MLK or Gandhi or presidents, scientific groundbreakers, people who conquered empires, usually white men. And that's what we teach. And what happens is when we use giants to explain what leadership is to kids, as they grow up, they completely compare what they are and who they or sorry, who they are and what they've done to these giants. And that creates this wedge between our concept of leadership and our own identity. And so we go through life comparing ourselves, does my life earn the title of leader? And we don't. Like I've asked a thousand audiences around the world, are how many of you are comfortable calling yourself a leader? Less than 1% of those audiences have half the people in the room raise their hand. Wow. And, and Yeah, and that blew my mind, right? Because these are teachers. These are nurses. These are CEOs often. I go and I speak at these big companies and they won't raise their hand because they're afraid that calling themselves a leader in front of other people calls for a level of cockiness and arrogance we don't want to be associated with. And what happens is as we compare ourselves to these giants – What happens is we start to diminish the leadership that we demonstrate every day. And everybody out there listening demonstrates moments of kindness and impact and generosity. The thing is we call them little things, all right? That's not actually leadership. We don't consider those things leadership. And when, as such, when they happen, we don't celebrate them as leadership and we don't feel good about ourselves as leaders in those moments. Leaders of other people's lives and leaders of our own lives. And we diminish that type of leadership in the name of organizational leadership and positional leadership. But when you let moments of leadership pass you by and you don't celebrate them and you don't feel good about them, well, the stuff that makes us feel good every day is the stuff we're driven to do again and again and again. So when you let those moments by and you don't celebrate them, we're pulling leadership out of our lives and organizations. And what we've done is we've created this this world where the vast majority of the leadership on the planet comes from people who don't see themselves as leaders. And most of the leadership on this planet, most of the leadership in the lives of everybody listening to this is going by unrecognized and uncelebrated. And when we don't celebrate it, we don't make it more likely it'll happen again and again. Mm -hmm. And I got so frustrated at us teaching leadership as this exclusive club that hardly anybody can get into that I said, I want to talk to people about a type of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. Because no, we can't all be CEOs, and no, we can't all be senior executives. But we can all aspire to a type of leadership where every day we can point to things that we did that sent someone away from us, feeling better off for that interaction. Mm. And how on earth is that not leadership when we find a way to make someone's understanding of the world, someone's understanding of their place in it, a little bit better? That's leadership. And it's a bigger leadership than most CEOs are ever going to have on your life. You know, it's interesting listening to you because I felt like a softening in myself because 
I've done a lot of things that I'm proud of, you know, like in my early 20s, running a program for the Pentagon, I replaced a 65 year old colonel or, you know, starting a platform and getting an e-course out there in the world that scaled into 30 countries. It's like these achievements are on paper. But I think for me, I, I hesitate to call myself a leader because of what I think a leader means. So it's not that I am that person in the room that at those conferences you speak at that doesn't want to own it because I think it's cocky. I just genuinely don't feel like what I think it means to be a leader is what I'm embodying. Because to me, being a leader means like you are able to hire incredible people, that the people are incredibly productive, that they love you, that you invest in them. Like I have a lot of ideas about what a good leader means. Whereas for me, you know, and we're going to talk about this, I think, soon about core values. One of my core values is freedom. Like I and I find managing people to be very restrictive to me, even though there's uh, a lot of freedom in managing somebody that's doing a great job and helping you free yourself up to do other things in the world that um, are part of your impact. And so uh, I'm curious, like, what do you think it is other than feeling like we're cocky? Because I think some people, yeah, they're, they don't want to raise their hand and be like, I'm a leader. But I think there's other women like me that are like, I just don't, I don't know, I'm an entrepreneur. I've made a bunch of money. I've lost a bunch of money. I, I've made an impact. A lot of people read my stuff, but I don't, I don't call myself a leader and I don't feel like one. Yeah, I think part of it is that it sounds like you're doing what a lot of us do. Yeah. And I spent and I still have struggled with this is that you evaluate your leadership and accomplishments over blocks of time. Yeah. Right. So you're like, what have I accomplished? You just listed off a whole bunch of stuff in your career. But ultimately, I think that what happens is if we're evaluating our leadership by what we've achieved and acquired over time, what we do is we just keep expanding the time we evaluate until we don't feel like a leader anymore. Mm. So you could say, wow, look at what I've accomplished this month. But wow, look at what uh, this person I work with ha accomplished over the last six months, right? I I'm, I'm far away from that. Look at how great a year I had. But man, like over a five-year plan, I'm not nearly as far ahead as some of my friends, all right? And then you look at five years and you say, this is amazing, but you know, look at what this person has done uh, over their career. We'll just keep expanding the time we evaluate until we convince ourselves that it's not enough yet. So a big part of, mm. of the leadership I think we need to focus on is simply instead of evaluating, instead of treating leadership as if it's accomplishments, a, a, accomplishments and acquisitions over a block of time, narrow it down until into one day at a time, because Everything that we want is a result of how we behave on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that what happens is when we start evaluating over blocks of time, we stop focusing on actually doing things today. And what we do is we lose sight of the impact we're having person to person. And that's an impact everybody can have. So, yeah, you don't feel like a leader. But what's something you did today, Ashley, that – ultimately you are convinced made somebody else's life a little bit better. Incredible. I would say, I mean, just the small things. I have a client who flew in from Australia, just checking on them. I really wouldn't know. Like this is an area where I'm like, oh, what does it mean to really be a leader? Well, here's the thing. You called it a small thing. Okay. This is what I, I get. Sorry. I really love talking about this. Let's I'm do getting it. riled. I apologize. Get but riled. Here's the thing. Okay. Um, moments of generosity, moments of kindness, moments of compassion, those moments that right now, if you're listening to this, you can think of somebody who did something for you that made you cry, right? How on earth are those little things? Mm. Like, what are we saying about the world when we call moments like that the, the little things or the small things? When we do it, 
what we're doing is we're reinforcing the idea that the big things in this world are things that make us rich or things that make us famous and everything else we call the little things. Ah. And that to me is we, we got to realize we're doing that shit. And yeah. I guess part of it too, is you say, why don't you feel like a leader? It's because I don't think we give our, each, ourselves evidence every day. We, we don't bother looking at the evidence every day. You know you did that stuff, but you don't present yourself with it every day. You wait till the end of the month and say, okay, where am I now compared to other people? And so I think that's a big piece of it is that we don't feel like leaders because we're not focusing on evidence that we are. And let's face it, what we're seeing in the world right now is that way too much stuff is being taken without evidence. We're not, we don't need to prove it. And, and I think that we will feel more like leaders when we start to reframe what moments of leadership are. And we talk about how that's tied to values. And I think that any moment that you can point to a behavior that is consistent with the person that you want to be, any time that you close the gap between the person that you want to be one day or how you envision yourself and how you're actually behaving, that is leadership. Leadership is closing that gap. Doing that is everybody's possibility. And if you do it consistently, you're going to get these things that we're taught are goals, money and influence and respect and, you know, promotions. Those things are not goals. They're byproducts. Well, they're also, I mean, this lends itself to a huge question, which is who is the person that you want to be? Because like you said, there's so many leaders that we see their output, but we haven't seen their process. And that's what life is. It's not just the output. It's all the time that you spend on your journey to, to then create that quick moment of output, you know? Um, yeah. And so how do we make a decision on who we are and who we can tap into as our inner leader? And I know your first point was redefining leadership. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. You said something that hits it right on the head is that most of us don't know who it is that we want to be. Yeah. And you can't very effectively hit a target that you don't clearly have defined. And what I found in 15 years of doing personal leadership development is that the vast majority of us don't know who it is that we want to be. And my philosophy, I actually have it tattooed on my, my left arm, is when you don't know what to do in a situation, ask yourself, what would the person who I want to be do in this situation and then do that? What I've discovered is that's a really hard thing to follow because we all went through an education system that taught us you should pay the most attention to the things on which you're going to be tested. That's what drew our attention. Mm -hmm. And you were never tested on what are your core values. Who are you were you? never tested on who do you want to be. It was always what do you want to do when you grow up. Mm -hmm. We were never tested on what is the criteria you're going to use to make decisions in your life. We were never tested on it. So we became our own worst subjects. Mm -hmm. That's how it happened. And what I think what I started to realize is that, especially if you're a high performer, like early on in your life, if you're a high performer, people figure out that you can get shit done. Yeah. And then they start asking you to get shit done. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we start to get rewarded for that, right? The, mm -hmm. the more you deliver what the person at the front of the room wants, the better you get rewarded. And so we never stop to take a minute and actually say, okay, who it is do I want to, that I want? And what am I doing today to close the gap between how I'm behaving and that person? Because if all of your obligations in a given day are obligations to other people, it's really hard to feel like you're in charge of your own life.
Well, you know, it's really interesting about what you said was you're saying that the person who gets shit done, like they get rewarded. But I've also read some studies that say the person who gets shit done gets noticed for getting shit done. And then they get so much stuff delegated on them that it's almost like a punishment because they're a top performer and people know they can do things. And I've actually found this in the workforce myself where I was really, um, I was, I'm an achiever. That's my Enneagram personality type is a type three achiever. And I like to get things done. And so I found that in the workforce that I was definitely an example, I think of that situation where people noticed that I would get things done faster because I'm quick. And, um, and then I was awarded with more work. And then I was always in the office late, whereas everybody else left early because I got more work assigned to me. So how do you kind of strike that balance of being that one that gets things done and corporate America looks at you and says, I'm going to reward you versus being the one that gets things done and you're rewarded with burnout and an intense workload? That's a complex ass question. Uh, (laughs) And in the book I talk about, uh, there's an entire value that's become essential to me because I was that person too. And it, it almost destroyed me. Yeah. And ultimately what I realized was that uh, there was no self-respect in my life. And, you know, I talk to uh, employers about when they're hiring people look for self-respect. In other words, if people talk about how they'll put in 90 hours a week, you don't want to hire them because they have no self-respect. Uh, self-respect means making decisions that recognize you cannot add value to anyone else's life, personal organization, if you're empty. And individuals not willing to take care of themselves or able to take care of themselves, there is no hole in your life that can't be filled by self-respect and we don't teach it and we don't in in uh in organizations respect it uh, enough Mm -hmm. so that's a real challenge and the other piece too is that you tend to burn out and feel empty when and again i don't just want to say you got to have self-respect and leave it at that i i do dive into some strategies on on embedding it into your life and we can talk about those if you want for sure But one of the things that I found was really important as well is taking the time to make sure that at some point in your day, you are keeping obligations to yourself. And the the argument I make is that those obligations should be tied to your personal leadership. You have to be able to every day, no matter how busy you are with your to-do list and other people's obligations, you have to have a core set of obligations to yourself that you keep. Because as I said, If every obligation in your life is to other people, to your kids, to your family, and look, those are important obligations to your job. At the end of the day, if 100% of your obligations are to other people, you feel completely powerless in your life. It's not your life. So even if it's 10% of the obligations in a day need to be to you, and my argument is that they should be worked into your day through your work, you can work into moments and give evidence that you are living the person that you want to be. Uh, And that has everything to do with identifying your core values. Hmm. Now, you know one of them, freedom. The hypothetical I want to give to everyone listening, if you want to start to think about what it is that you got to put into every day and you probably aren't, is if someone followed you around for 30 days out of your life, And at the end of those 30 days, I sat them down and they've seen every interaction that you're a part of, public, private, online and virtual, people you love, people you hate, people you don't even know. At the end of those 30 days, if I sat them down, Ashley, and I said, okay, you followed this woman around 30 days, she had no idea. What three values does she want to put out into the world every single day? What three values does she pivot to when she has to make a big decision? What three values does she want her kids to take out into the world that they got from her the way you got from your dad. 
if you have been, if you've been the woman you want to be for those 30 days, what three values do you hope that you stand for every day? Okay. Wow. What a big question. And I know that my top core value is connection. You know, um, I know a lot of entrepreneurs have a core value of impact. And I've said a lot of times on this podcast, for some reason, I just find it really profound that I've happened to make an impact, I believe, but that's not something that drives me at all. It's connection. And, you know, connection makes an impact. You connect with somebody like this podcast and it's going to make an impact. But how do I go about figuring out those values? I think I'm pretty in touch with myself, but maybe I'm not. How can anybody listening come up with an answer to that? Well, often what happens is that people, because I ask hundreds of people that question, right? Yeah. And they can list off one and then maybe two and then they really struggle with a third. Yeah. And if you give them enough time, what we get are the holy trinity, I like to call them, which is uh, uh, integrity, honesty, and kindness, right? Especially integrity comes out. Mm -hmm. The thing is, we don't know what those mean and they just sound good. So if you're listening to this and you really want to get a better idea of what your core values are, you can't just think about them. The best indicator of what you value in this world is how you behave. And as such, if you want to identify your values, here's the challenge that I would give all. If you want to do a, a cool exercise uh, right after you're done here, I want all of you to imagine that you like how I'm now talking to your audience instead of to you. I I'm, I'm so in it. I am your audience right now. I am like in okay. this, like I'm fired up. Let's go. Okay. So I want you to think, imagine that you have, have children. I, I don't know if you do, um, but anyone out there who's listening who has kids, they can imagine, envision this. If not, imagine you have a son or a daughter and it's their last night under your roof, 18, 20 years from now. And they're about to go off to school, get married, whatever. As you're walking by their door, they call you into the room and you sit down on the edge of the bed and they say, mom, dad, what do I need to know? What, and this is the key piece, what insights and experiences and knowledge have most contributed to your happiness? And it's, that's what I think is key is that what insights, experiences and knowledge have most contributed to your happiness? That is not something most of us have reflected on. We want to be happy, but we spend very little time reflecting on the track what, record. What, are, what is the knowledge? What, is, what situations make me happy? And what am I consciously doing every day to get myself into them? Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I want to make sure you know that this episode has been brought to you by the Job Offer Academy, our e-course to help you land a new job you love. So if you're sick of applying for jobs and never hearing back, and you'd like to try a free version of our job hunting course, just head on over to U-TurnPodcast.com slash job offer. That's Y-O-U-T-U-R-N podcast.com slash job offer. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Now, think of 30 answers to that question. And I know that seems like a lot, but think of, because if you think about just one piece of edge of the bed advice is which, what I call that, everyone gets intimidated because they, they think they have to give this great, you know, singular insight into the world. Yeah, it's but, like your big it, moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah, think of 30. You know, someone once wrote down for me when I gave them this assignment, if you're going to get, if you're going to get a dog, get two. That's something she learned. And that's not a deep, profound thought, but she learned that. Mm. And so write down 30 of these pieces of insight because every one of those things you write down. And if you want to do it, just sit over your coffee one morning and fill in this sentence. 
what do I know to be true about? You could finish that sentence with love. What do I know to be true about love? What do I know to be true about failure? What do I know to be true about money? What do I know to be true about friendship? Just think of a word that exists on this planet and think about what do I know to be true about that? And if you just do that one, one or two a day, you'll get your list. Mm. And what that list represents is the things that you've learned through experience. Mm. Every one of those pieces of things on your list is tied to a, a, an experience or a set of experiences that taught you something, that made you happy, that made you sad, that led to failure, that led to success, other people being happy or sad. Mm. So every single one of those values, every single one of those pieces of insight is born from your experience, mm. things that actually happened to you. Mm. Now, each one of those pieces of insight, like one of mine that I came up with when I was challenged myself with this is that you need to know there are more Rosalines in this world than Juliet's. That, you know, this Rosaline, the character at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet, that Romeo can't live without, that he's so deeply in love. We don't hear from her after the first couple yeah, of seasons, right? that's because, so true. Because Where he has she found go? what he truly wants. He found his Juliet. Now, uh, ultimately, what, I, what I, I mean by that piece of insight is that so many of the things that we think we have to have in this world, uh, actually, if we don't get them, there's probably something better coming down the pipe. So even if it wasn't, if you lose something that you thought you must have, recognize that it's probably a Rosaline and not a Juliet because there's way more of them out there than there are. Uh, also, both Romeo and Juliet die at the end of that story. So, <laughs> Side note, it didn't like, end well. Well, that's actually my next insight is that love doesn't conquer all. Mm -hmm. I've learned this in life. Love does not conquer all, mm -hmm. but it does have an incredibly good winning percentage. Mm -hmm. Like love is basically LeBron James. So you should adjust your expectations accordingly. Now, what I mean by this is that at the core of each one of your pieces of advice are, are values. What you're basically saying with each one of those is if you take this advice to heart, you will do a better job living the values of what? And for more Rosalines and Juliet, take that to heart your whole life and you'll do a better job living the values of self-awareness, resilience, perseverance, uh, courage, right? And mm -hmm. so reverse engineer the values at the foundation of every one of your pieces of advice. Go through all 30 and say, what am I saying? What is the foundational value here? Is it courage? Is it self-awareness? Is it freedom? Is it integrity? For each one of those pieces of advice, you'll probably come up with one to three values that are really at its base. At the end of the exercise, you'll have between 30 and 90 core values that have emerged. What I'm going to tell you is between three and six of them are going to be way more frequent than the others. And those are what you actually stand for in this world. And the, what I talk about in the book, what I talk about in my work, is how you can actually make sure, how important it is, and how to actually embed behaviors tied to those values every day. So on those days where everything outside of your control blows up in your face, at least you can point at the end of the day to the fact that you lived for at least three moments, whatever it might be, as the woman or the man that you want to be. Because I want to tell all of you out there, and I understand there's a lot of millennials in your audience, although mm -hmm. I'm not crazy about the word. <laughs> How you relate to the issue is the issue, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I look at it this way. A lot of people listening to this and a lot of people I work with are not in charge of what they have to do every day. Mm -hmm. It's just the nature of world of work, right? You're not in charge of what you have to do every day, but you're always in charge of who you are. And 
unless we flex that muscle every day, we lose sight of it. And my argument of being in charge of who you are is at the end of every day, you better give me evidence. If, if connection's important to you, at the end of the day, I think you have to train yourself to be able to point specifically to moments where you fostered that value. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we go through most of our days without giving ourselves any evidence that we're the type of person that we want to be. And I don't mean in some esoteric way. I'm just like, give me actual evidence that you were a woman of connection, mm-hmm. that I was a man of courage. Like, if you can't give evidence of that, if you could only give me three pieces of evidence in the course of a week that you lived up to your core values, then you're not actually, then leadership for you, personal leadership isn't actually uh, isn't actually something you're living. It's just a hobby. And what we need to do is move our, our leadership and move living up to our core values from a hobby to an actual practice. Mm. And, and that's really where it comes from. Mm. Use that activity and you're going to surface what's truly important to you. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, like going from an amateur to a pro of really weaving it in. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, a book, Stephen Pressfield. That's his big thing in Turning Pro, which is such an awesome book that I think you would love too. And I, I'm also write curious. Yeah, write it down. You would really like it. He's, he's kind of a secret pioneer, that guy, um, Stephen Pressfield. But I'm also curious... You know, a lot of people don't even know what values are sometimes. Like, like every, we know courage and integrity and strength. But can you list off more examples of what you think are common core values or just to give people's ideas flowing? Yeah, you just hit it on the head, right? It's, it started for me when someone at the end of my first, my first class at U of T walked up to me and said, I'm an international student and the type of leadership you're talking about, I'm not sure. Could you explain what it means in the simplest English terms possible, what leadership means? And this was a core fundamental value for me, and I choked on that. I I didn't have an answer. And you're right. We use these words all the time. And so for me, what happened is I went home that night, and I listed off all of these words, uh, integrity and respect, uh, forgiveness, resilience, perseverance, Uh, And in the back of the book, I list all kinds of them because what I've realized in this exercise is that most people don't have a value lexicon. I didn't. Like, I don't have a list of words that are values or definitions. But what I did is I wrote down a bunch of these words that if someone was in a room talking about me and I wasn't there, what are the words I want them to use to describe me? And it was things like respect and integrity and accountability, class. Uh, empathy. And so what I did, though, is every one of those words that I wrote down, I imagine that young woman from my class walking up to me and saying, I'm sorry, that ink, that word does not exist in my language. Wow. Could you explain what respect means in the simplest English terms possible? Could you explain what courage means in the simplest English terms possible? And like most people, you give me five to 10 minutes with one of those words, and I can give you a great definition. But I was 28 that night, and I never bothered to do it. And the thing I want to make people aware of is that that's usually the case for most of us. I had spent the better part of 15 years evaluating how I felt about myself as a professional and as a friend and as a human being based on how well I lived up to this list of values. And I judged other people swiftly, and I judged them harshly when I felt that they didn't live up to these values. And the the big way of how we judge ourselves and other people, whether we're aware of it or not, it's unconscious, is how well they're living up to this list of values in our heads. And we don't know what the list is. 
and we don't know what the things on the list mean, which means most of the judgments you're making in your life about yourself and other people are unconscious and you have no idea the criteria you're using for them. So courage, I look at it this way. Every single value that you've got in your head that you want to stand for after you surface them, define them using the phrase a commitment to. Because a commitment to defines what the actual values, what behaviors are. So courage is a commitment to taking action when there is a possibility of loss. Collaboration is a commitment to cooperating with others in the pursuit of goals. A com- a creativity is a commitment to creating ideas and behaving in ways that are new to you. And ultimately, what that means is if you haven't clearly defined what connection means to you, if you haven't turned it into a goal so that you know when you hit it, If you haven't said, here are the behaviors consistent with connection so that when you engage in those behaviors, you can say, I did it. You could be, and you probably are, embodying connection every day of your life. And the problem is most of the time you are never giving yourself credit for that. You are never celebrating that fact. And most of the moments in your life where you are being the woman you most wanna be are going by unrecognized and uncelebrated. And it is the celebrations in your life that give you momentum. And I believe that setting goals is planning celebrations. Oh, I love and that. And we set, yeah, we, we set goals for our organizations and you set goals for your career and you set, set goals for your financial life. My argument is that leadership is spending just as much time, just as much energy and just as many resources setting and chasing goals for your daily behavior and character as you do for your career, for your financial life, for your relationships because career financial life relationships are the natural byproducts of your daily behavior and we're not focusing on it we're focusing on achievements and acquirements acquirements achievements and things you acquired over time Mm -hmm. and that's it right so once i discovered how we could get people living their values every day more consciously what we discovered was that people felt like they were giving themselves evidence every day that they were the person they wanted to be that they were having impact, that they were actually seeing the moments where they were impacting other human beings and they were consciously creating them. And what we did is we started to create more people who felt like they mattered and more people who recognized that they were engaging in leadership every day. Beautiful. Yeah, I guess what it's like what Eckhart Tolle says is what you focus on expands. Or the alternative is what you resist gets louder because I guess resistance is a level of focus. I'm so curious, you, you talk about operationalizing leadership values. What does this mean? So let's say somebody who's listening right now, um, they wrote down those 30 Uh, pieces of advice and they extracted their values from it after looking at the patterns and getting really clear. They write what those values mean to them, which by the way is really interesting to me because when it comes to, I've had different experts on the podcast about love and relationships and they talk about core values. But what I've learned is really funny is that somebody will say my core value is adventure. And then the other person will say mine too. And I'm like, okay, what does adventure look like for you? And one person's like trying new restaurants. The other one wants to go skydiving, like totally different. So I love that you're kind of encouraging the depth on this. And what does it look like when somebody operationalizes their leadership values? Yeah, operationalizing your leadership values is a fancy term for a simple process Mm -hmm. because we cooked it up at a university. And at the University of Toronto, if it doesn't sound pretentious, (laughs) you're not trying hard enough. (laughs) So uh, operationalizing your leadership values is a three-step process. One Identify a value you care about. And I want to be clear, a value is a decision-making principle. It is what you pivot to when you have to make decisions in your life. So ultimately, they're not just these words that we use. It's a, a, clear, identi- a clear identification of what you're trying to accomplish. If your 
value is loyalty, you are going to make decisions that reinforce your relationships with other people. So when you evaluate your course of action, you pivot to your values and you say, which option is most consistent with these values? The challenge for leaders is that often the option most consistent with your values sucks. Mm. It just blows, right? It's It doesn't allow you to avoid punishments. It doesn't allow you to uh, look good. It doesn't allow you to keep the money or stay in the job or yes. remain in the relationship. Yes. But it is the decision you're happiest you made five years from now. Mm-hmm. If you imagine every decision in your life as if you were standing in front of a room full of people you respect and explaining the decision rather than you're about to make it, then a lot of the noise surrounding your decisions in life falls away. When you identify and define your core values, which is step two of the operationalizing process, identifying a core value and then defining it using the phrase a commitment to. Mm. When you do those two steps, it's not just a nice self-reflective exercise. What you're effectively doing is creating criteria for decision-making. For the rest of your life, whenever you gotta make a decision, you take the options, hold them next to the values, and you make that call. Ultimately, one of the things that we find though is that if you haven't identified your core values and defined what they mean, what criteria have you been using to make decisions your whole life? It hasn't been consistent. And for most people, the criteria we use to make decisions every day is what will avoid the most consequences right now. That sounds very empowering, Drew. Like, what a bummer. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's what we're doing. And yeah. ultimately, that leads to inconsistent decision-making that isn't true to who we want to be. And we regret it five years from now. Yeah. The thing is, we want to avoid the short-term consequences. Now, when what you do when you identify your values and define them Good leaders do this because it allows you to live your values every time the opportunity presents itself. Where great leaders separate from good leaders is good leaders live their values every time the opportunity presents itself. Great leaders create opportunities to live their values. And that's the third step in operationalizing a leadership value. And it came from some things I stole from psychology professors. And that is this. I challenged some students to live up to a value they identified, which was impact, uh, creating moments that cause people to walk away feeling as if they're better off for having interacted with you. That's how they defined it. And when we just told them to go do it, they'd show up at my office at the end of the day and they'd think back over the course of the day, pick a moment where they did it, and they share it, which is cool. But they were using this value to evaluate behavior that had already happened. And what leaders do is they use their values to drive behavior and change decision-making in the moment. So what I did is I I discovered from some psychology professors that there's a better way of driving human behavior. And what they did is they told me two psychological effects. One is the Zygarnik effect, which says that stuff you haven't done takes up a bigger place in your consciousness than stuff that you have. In, In other words... Yeah, shit that you haven't finished bugs you, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was a scientific term for that. And the second was the question behavior effect, which is if I ask you questions about a certain type of behavior in the morning, you're way more likely to engage in that behavior unconsciously later in the day. Mm -hmm. So if I sat down over breakfast and said, Ashley, what what does connection mean to you? How do you try to connect? Who is the greatest connector and community builder that you know? unconsciously you're going to be driven to seek out opportunities to live that behavior later in the day. So when you combine a a conscious decision to act a certain way with these psychological effects, 
you have a lot more likelihood that you're going to drive behavior. And so what we did is we transferred this goal of having impact from just a statement, hey, let's go out and create a moment that causes someone to feel better off today. We changed it to a question. And the question was carefully crafted so that you could not answer it without living the definition of the value. Let me be specific. What we created was a question that said, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? That's the question. So it was a very specific task for the students is that go out and find an answer to this question. Now, the beautiful thing about it was it was very specific. You couldn't just answer it yes or no. You had to say, this is the moment where I did this. The idea being leadership's on such a pedestal and we're a leadership program that if you recognize someone else's leadership to their face, you tell them how they've been a leader in your life, it's really unlikely they'll walk away not feeling better off, right? Uh So it was this very specific thing. And that question made me quit my job because over the next week, and the assignment was you had to journal, the 12 students and myself had to journal how answering that question, what what it led to. And when we had the class where we talked about it, not a single person failed to cry at some point during that presentation, that, that sharing session, I guess you could call it. Their coaches, their teachers, um, people from their past, my students had leaned into this, and, and I know we're, we're short on time. So I, in the book, I talk about the stories of what happened as a result of that. I've done entire keynotes on it, but we knew we were on to something. And a, a month later, we added another value and another question. A month after that, another value and another question. And we committed to trying to answer them every day. Hmm. And by the end of the year, we were trying to live impact, growth, empowerment, class, self-respect and courage and we tied them to to key questions impact was what have i done today to recognize someone else's leadership growth was what have i done today to make it more likely someone would learn something empowerment what have i done today to move someone else closer to a goal Mm. class when did i elevate a situation that i could have escalated today and chose not to Mm. courage what did i try today that might not work but tried anyway and self-respect what have i done today to be good to myself And if you listening out there, use that as your leadership test, which is what we did. We basically said this. We have to earn another day on this planet. Every single night we have to prove that we deserve another day on this planet. And to do that, what we have to do is pass the leadership test. Get three out of those six questions. And the beautiful thing about the leadership test is that you get the questions in the morning. And all you need to do is make sure that your behavior at some point during the day gives you an answer, a specific moment where you behaved in a way that answered three of those questions. And if you do that, not only do you earn another day on the planet, but you cannot argue that you were not a leader. Because every one of those questions, if you create an answer for it, you sent out a ripple in this world that made it better. Mm. And yes, if you do that enough times, you're going to be rewarded with the stuff we're taught is leadership. But the power of translating your values into questions and creating an evaluative process where at the end of every day, you know whether or not you passed your personal leadership test. And the book is about identifying your values and creating your own test. But ultimately, that's a gift you can give yourself because there will be days where absolutely nothing in your control works out. But if you pass the test, that means that, yeah, your day was a loss, but it wasn't a waste. And that's really the approach that we took, operationalizing your leadership values. Identify it, 
define it and turn it into an action-oriented question that becomes a part of a daily behavior driver. And that, to me, is what I teach people all over the world because what it does is it gives them a clear set of behaviors each day to make sure they engage in through their work. And even if they're being piled on from external forces, those questions are your obligations to yourself. And setting and living obligations to yourself, that's where freedom comes from. Because even when everything that you have to do or is put on you from somewhere else, you can still finish every day knowing that you flexed the control you have over who you are. And unless we are conscious about it, we let a lot of days go by where we don't do it. You know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking like a couple things you said stood out in an interesting way. You said earning, you go to bed at night earning the next day and you have these questions to ask yourself. And I guess there's a part of me like the leverage based freedom addicted entrepreneur that's like, what if someday is just a throwaway day where you just don't want to be a leader that day? Like, like, and what do you have to say about that? Like maybe some people like, I know I just wake up some days and I'm like, I just want to let today be a day where I don't really do anything or think about anything. And maybe I'll watch TV that day. And it's a rare day, but it happens maybe a few times a year where I'm like, I'm just doing absolutely nothing. Um, What are your thoughts on that? That's a really interesting question. I think (laughs) we have to realize straight up what you are deciding that day is to not be the person you want to be. Uh, But at the same time, if you don't, if you choose to do nothing all day, that lives up to any of your values, you are consciously choosing not to be the person you want to be. However, it depends on why you're doing that. Because one of my core values is self-respect. And what did I do today to be good to myself? Get out of bed and watch Netflix all day. If that's what I need to do, that is how I can answer that question. I think part of it is like not saying I don't want to be a leader today. My argument is that if you live up to your values, you are a leader. Mm. So don't look at it like choosing to be a leader. Look at it about choosing whether or not you want to use today to be the person that you want to be. Because you only have so many of these days. Mm. We really do. And, and my life has been a constant evidence of that. Like I'm 41 years old and I've been to 19 of my friends' funerals and wow. only 10 of their weddings. And so we only get so many. So be very careful which days you choose to just not be the person that you want to be because a lot of those days will slip by and as they add up, it changes how we feel about ourselves. Mm. Wow, that's and ultimately, Yeah, ultimately I think it, it's, it's this, Ashley. There's very few moments where you live up to the person you want to be that your life isn't better for it. So mm. those six questions I laid out, I can answer those with a laptop and a phone in less time than it takes me to empty my email inbox. But for most of my life, I prioritized emptying my email inbox over being the man I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you get out of bed and you don't want to change the world. Just remember, there is no world. There's just 7 billion understandings of it. Every time you change one person's understanding of the world, you change the whole thing. And in the course of your day, I don't think most of us on most days don't want to seize that opportunity because it's not as much effort as we think. Mm. And if you stay home one day because you don't want to do anything else, cool. As long as you're doing that because it it refuels you so that you can go out and do something else. But if you're doing it because you feel helpless or you're doing it because you feel you don't deserve to do anything, that's different. Yes, I can totally see where you're coming from with that. And 
Um, I wonder what you think of this question. I was just at a party this weekend, and I think this is what happens when all of your friends throw personal development and transformation events and seminars, is that you go to their birthday party and you're asked really deep questions <laughs> when you walk in. And so it's really fun. I came in and it was my friend's birthday and she handed out cards and it said, how do you want people to feel when you leave the room? Like after you've, they've spent time with you, what do you want people's experience to be of you? And I don't know if this links up in any way to your work with core values, but to me, it felt like it in a way, like asking somebody like, at least who do you want to be? Maybe it's not, who are you? Um, and I, my answer was, I want people to feel, I want to be a healing presence for people. I want to walk away and I want people to feel lighter because I was in the room, whether it's because I made them laugh with a sense of humor or because I asked them a really profound question that shifted the way that they think. Um, so what would you have to say for anybody listening and answering that question as it relates to core values? What a cool question. I know. Uh, and I think it reinforces something that someone said to me that really blew my mind once, which was you are 100% in charge of what it feels like to talk to you. Yes. Oh, I love that. Amazing. Yeah. And, and it reinforced this idea that um, that question, I think, reinforces the idea that I think is really important in personal leadership is that you are always in control of something in your life. And helplessness sort of emerges when we lose sight of that fact and when we stop practicing it. Yeah. Let me switch it this way uh, to answer your question on how it might be applicable to the actual process of operationalizing leadership values. So you want to, to walk away. You want people to feel that when you walk away. So what is a question that you could go into every interaction with that if you find an answer for it at the, at the end of the conversation, you know that you've done that. So what did I do during this conversation too? Or what have I done at this party too? Like you go in like that, what would be a question that you could ask yourself that you could say, okay, my test at this party is to make sure I walk out with an answer to this question that's going to make people, that's gonna, actually going to make that a reality. What would a question be you could walk into the room to make people feel like that? I mean, it's pretty direct and intense question for somebody who doesn't know me, but I wouldn't put it past me to ask it. I'd probably ask like, where are you in pain? Yeah, well, that's if you ask someone else. I guess one of the ways you could do it is this. You could say, how did I seek out someone's pain tonight? Or how did I help alleviate someone's pain tonight? Yes. Or how did I search to make someone feel healed tonight? Mm -hmm. See, what you do is you make it a mission not to just be, I'm going to behave this way, but you actually set out a specific answer you have to get. And what happens is when that question becomes a fundamental part of your daily commitment, when a moment up, when a opportunity arises to answer it, you jump at it because having that question unanswered causes psychic discomfort. That's the psychological effect. So the key is to make that question such an essential part of your day that when you're having a conversation with someone, that it will say to you, here's your chance to answer that question. Make sure you do it right here. So that's sort of, it is tied to it really carefully because if you want people to feel a certain way when you've left, make sure you have a question that you're going to ask yourself that drives a certain behavior. How did I make someone feel heard today? How did I make someone feel seen today? And that I think is so essential because only hurt people hurt others. And being attuned to where people's pain is, I think, is really key. And so being on the lookout for it is essential. But really what that question she asked you was about was, one, reminding you of the power, the power all of us have to 
to control who we are and how we behave. It's really the only power that we, we do have overall that we can guarantee. Everything else we hope we can explore or expand power over. But uh, that question is great because what it does, it reminds you is you're always in control of who you are. My argument is that create questions that as you seek to answer them, it forces you to behave in ways that drive you to that type of person, that do make people feel that way around you. So it's not about what you ask other people. It's about what you ask yourself and how you seek those answers and how your behavior is driven by your your seeking those answers. Well, and it's interesting because I was just listening to you and I was thinking, you know, I'm not necessarily looking to draw in a lot of people who have pain as much as just wanting to be a lightning force for people. Because a lot of areas, people aren't necessarily in pain, but they might have a heaviness about something that doesn't have to be that heavy. And I think the result of that is I feel connection. I feel like I have been a healing presence and I've connected more to that person because they're sharing things with me that they don't share all the time and there's depth to that for me. Um, mm -hmm. So interesting. Um, well, you've, you've given so many nuggets. Um, I would love for you to just, if, if somebody listens to this and they forget everything we said except for one thing, what would be the one thing you want everybody to really hear and take away? You know what's funny is there's a story in my book uh, about how you should never try to, <laughs> to to get things down to one thing. So maybe that's uh, the way it would go. But maybe I that's think, what you um, have to say. <laughs> uh, one that's so so difficult because um, I guess it depends on what they need at that moment and what their pain is at that moment. Mm -hmm. Leadership recognized as leadership created is something that that I really focus on. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think that. I talk about this in the book and, and uh, how big a part failure is in everything. You know, like there are days you said where you don't want to do anything. That's cool. You can have some of those days. When I lost 100 pounds, uh, the person who helped me get through it told me that you get 65 days of failure in the next year, two months of failure. It's just part of the plan. And But if you get 300 out of 365 days of answering these questions about health uh, every single day, you will be 100 pounds lighter. And that's still having failed for two months. Uh, I guess one of the things I'll, I, I want people to know is that this process, what it does is it provides a roadmap through uncertainty. And the fact is that you have made it through every single failure in your life. You have survived every challenge that you've ever had because you're still here. And what happens though is when we fail, we often feel like we don't know what the future holds and we're lost. When you identify the things you want to stand for and you commit to living them every day, what you're doing is you're giving yourself a roadmap through uncertainty. Because when we don't know what the future holds, we often fail to act in the present because we're afraid we're going to screw up and do something that screws up the future. It's a lot better to be decisive than certain in mm. life. Mm. And so knowing these core questions you have every day, even on the days where you have no concept what the future holds, you do know what how to behave today so that when the future does arrive, you will be the type of person that you want to be. And in many ways, you'll be the type of person who can handle it better. So I just want to remind people that there's zero evidence in this world that you won't make it through because you can't pick one moment in your life where you failed to get through something. You might, might not be happy about how you got through it. You might be scarred by it, but you did get through it. You are batting a thousand on actually getting through the challenges in your life. Gosh, that's so Give yourself beautiful. credit for that because we don't. And we, with, with zero evidence at all, we, we will allow ourselves to believe that we won't get through something. 
But there's no evidence at all that that exists. And so why on earth would we believe that this time is going to be the time we don't? Because there's zero evidence. And I think I like leaving people with that because what I found is that, yeah, leadership recognized is leadership created. You are a leader. And I want people to take that away from the book. But mostly what I want people to take away from the book is how much they are in charge of their behavior and how much resilience that they can actually have. And just to say, you're going to screw up, but leadership isn't failing to screw up and leadership isn't having all the answers. Leadership is having the courage to keep asking the unanswered questions in your life day after day after day until you're, you're ready to hear the answers and until you give yourself evidence that you are, in fact, a leader. And just do it on a daily basis. Every one of us is born each or every one of us wakes up every day having accomplished the exact same amount to earn the title of leader. Nothing. When I wake up tomorrow and I'm the CEO, when you wake up, you're this really successful entrepreneur with half a million people listening to her. When anyone out there uh, listening to this who just started a job and is at the very bottom of the totem pole, when we all wake up tomorrow morning, we will have all done the exact same amount to earn the title of leader. Nothing. And all that matters is whether you use that day to engage in behaviors, non-negotiable behaviors that you set up to be a leader. Mm -hmm. And so we're all going to wake up tomorrow with the same starting point. We have an opportunity and an obligation to behave in ways that impact others. And if you do it, you're a leader. Give yourself credit for it. Wow, what a long-ass answer to a simple-ass question. Holy shit, Drew, I love that. Because you know what? You set me up, though, because you were like, I was like, what's the one thing? You're like, I got a story in my book about how I don't like that. And then you went into, like, seven awesome things. So I have no complaints. I'm I'm really grateful for your time. And I know that a lot of people listening are going to want more of you. I'm going to include your book about um, This Is Day One in the show notes on uturnpodcast.com. But is there anything else uh, or anywhere else that people can go to get more of you? Yeah, DrewDudley.com is where sort of everything is housed. Uh, that's D-R-E-W-D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. And there it's got the access, you know, you can buy the book. There's an online program that will walk you through interactively, uh, having to look at me wearing my fedora, uh, <laughs> that you can get there as well. As well as, um, you know, there's all, I think I've done nine TEDx talks, and I think six of them are up on that site, uh, where you can sort of get a little bit more in depth about any number of things. So DrewDudley.com is, is the place to go. And I think I'm at day one Drew, D-A-Y-O-N-E. D-R-E-W on pretty much every social media platform. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Drew. This has been incredible. Oh, Ashley, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I, I'm in like a psyched up mood today, so if I was intense, I apologize. Oh. And I have to do that because I'm Canadian. So don't if even I don't worry. apologize once, we're screwed. No, that's totally fine. I'm actually highly caffeinated right now, so I'm able to meet <laughs> you right there. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. We keep really detailed show notes at U-TurnPodcast.com. So if our guest mentioned a book or a resource that you're interested in, you'll be able to find that there. In the meantime, if you were inspired by this episode, if it made an impact in your life, we would be so grateful if you subscribed and posted a review for us on iTunes. Rumor has it on the street, the more reviews we get, the more subscribes we get, the more we can grow and get our impact out there in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you at Ashley Stahl on Instagram. I'm so grateful for connecting and I look forward to next week's episode.
This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.